every day I hope to find somebody who I can help to become a better person. And with that definition of how I will measure my life, it's just totally changed the way I think. Um, and I don't want to impose my feeling on, uh, on all you guys, but I do think it's a great way to think about uh, how will you... How will you measure your life, and how does that mesh with how judgment will be given to you at the end of your life? And just be sure that you uh, organize your life so that you do a good job at that metric. And I'm really quite happy. I, you know, I can imagine that I would spend my time writing for Jillians, uh, thinking that if I change the way they think, um, that's a good thing for how, how I will measure my life. But it is so much more um, satisfying to think about individual people who I help to become better people. We want to thank our sponsor, Next Estate. Next Estate specializes in English-speaking, buying, selling, and managing of properties in the German market. They're Berlin-based, and you can find them at next-estate.com. Everyone I have talked to about today's guest has said how great she is, that I love her, and we've had a pre-conversation, and I can say it's absolutely tr true. She was editor of the HBR, the Harvard Business Review, until 2011, when the topic we're gonna talk about today, this book, and the conversation that became this book changed her life. And she's going to tell us about how that happened. She is a graduate of Cornell University and Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. In 2011, she was named by Ashoka as one of the world's most influential and aspire, inspiring women. She is also an incredible author and has a new book coming out in the new year we're going to talk about in, in the new year. But she's here to talk about a book that she co-authored with the star of this series, who is the late Clayton Christensen. She is co-author of How Will You Measure Your Life? Karen Dillon, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me for those very kind words. It's great to have you. I've been dying to cover this book and speak to you. And I wasn't sure because we've covered Compete Against Look with Taddy Hall, which you also co-authored as well, I have to say, which is another fa fabulous read. And you've got a new book coming out in the new year. Maybe you'll give us a sneak peek at that at the end of today's show or the end of the part two of today's show, if you're allowed to. But let's get to how this happened, because as I told you in our, our conversations preparing for today, this book also changed my life. I read this book when my family were young and I was on holidays, I was in a stressful job and it made me see things differently. And I think that was one of the goals of the book and indeed the goal of many of Clayton's theories were lenses through which to see the world differently and therefore make different choices. And it definitely worked for me and I know it worked for you. Maybe you'll share the origin story for us. 
I'd be happy to, because I had a similar reaction to your vacation moment, but in the midst of a very busy, normal, typical day when I was the editor of Harvard Business Review. So it was, as you said, it was over a decade ago, and I had two youngest children as well. Uh, And like many people my age and stage of life, I was consumed with my work. My days were very busy. And at that point, when I was the editor of Harvard Business Review, I was looking for an extra article to fill a special double issue we had coming out for Harvard Business Review, the July, August 2010 issue. And honestly, I was looking for something relatively easy to do because working with academics sometimes takes time and they're very intellectual challenges, but I wanted one extra article to get to the deadline more quickly. So I was looking for something that might be a little different. And in the spring of 2010, It occurred to me that it would be interesting to check in with some of the soon-to-be graduates of Harvard Business School because that particular class, the class of 2010, had applied to business school when we were still in a very roaring economy. And as soon as they got there, the recession hit and it sort of fell off a cliff. So I was just wondering, being hermetically sealed in the safety of Harvard Business School for two years, having perhaps had one set of goals and aspirations when they started at Harvard Business School, had that time in HBS changed their definition of success or what they thought they were seeking when they came out or or how they were going to measure their own success in some ways. So I was talking to students and I ended up talking to a student who was one of the presidents of the graduating class. And he told me that they had asked Clayton Christensen, who was at the time and remains one of the most respected and and famous uh, professors at Harvard Business School of all time. They had asked him to address the graduating class uh, off of, not, not a graduation, but as a special kind of ceremony to just have him talk to them. And that what he had said was profoundly moving. He told me a little bit, but honestly, not that much. I just remember thinking, it's Clayton Christensen. It sounds like a kind of valedictory speech or a kind of go off into the world. I can figure out something to do with that. So I called Clay's office and I didn't know him personally. I just knew who he was. I had not worked with them. He was just, you know, the sort of famous and revered Clayton Christensen and asked if I could come over and figure out some way to turn what he said to the class into an article. And what I now know was it was incredibly lucky that he said yes, because he was one of the busiest men in, in the world. And uh, people were always asking for his time, but he he made time for me right away. I think with the next day or within a couple of days. And so as I went to his office, I was like every editor on a deadline, you know, filled with all the stuff I had to get done. My mind was completely, you know, thinking of a quick, how quickly can I get whatever I record in our conversation today into an article? How will it work? You know, what am I going to make for dinner? What about the deadline? And next, I was just filled with stuff. Um, and I walked into his office, met him for the first time in person, and put my little digital recorder down in front of his, in front of him on the desk, and we just talked for an hour and a half, I think, and. When I left, when I picked up that recorder and left and thanked him for his time, my mind was totally shifted. I had all the stuff that I walked into that room thinking about was gone. And I remember really clearly walking back to my car in the parking lot of Harvard Business School. And I actually just stood outside my car for like 10 minutes, as busy as I was, as late as I was, as rushed as I was, um, not putting the keys in the car, just like thinking about what we had just talked about. Uh, And so what we'd really talked about was an article, but what happened to me was everything we talked about that he had shared with his students was just hitting me in a really profound way. Uh, So what we instantly did or started to do was work on the article, but what really happened was he just changed the same thing that you talked about, changed the way I viewed the world. And 
the article was the beginning of what ended up being a decade of working, collaborating with Clay on things. And I changed my entire life. I, I left being a full-time editor of Harvard Business Review and just completely reprioritized my life so that I would have better balance in it, basically. So one conversation with Clay was moving enough for me to do what I think a lot of people thought was crazy, which was resign a job that was sort of a pinnacle job for me. Um, and in my personal case, my husband's British. I had met him when I was living in the UK. We decided together over a full year of thinking about it and working through it carefully to sell our house in America um, and move our kids with us to the UK, to London for a couple of years, just so they could see the world differently. So we made really dramatic changes but where the center of gravity for me was really what was going to be best for my relationship with my family and not what was going to get me to the next deadline. It just dramatic shift. And it was the beginning of really wonderful years working with Clay. Beautiful. It's so good to hear that. And, and you and I talked about this, that you make those decisions and they are scary and you don't know what's going to happen, but you won't regret them, particularly as we'll progress through the book as well, when it involves spending more time with your family and those people you care about most. And I often think about this paradox that many of us live through where it's, I'll work to provide for my family and give them the best life ever, give them my best possible life. And then by doing that, you're not spending any time with them. And then by the time you collect this money pot, this pot of gold that you're able to go, I cleared off the mortgage, they've outgrown you and they don't need you anymore. And then sometimes they're even resentful of you. And it was one of those moments that I had where I was like, kind of going, Oh, okay. And also, the other thing I don't know if it happened for you is, I changed my measure of what success was. So I didn't think a fancy car or big massive house or any of those things became the measure anymore instead it was the the closeness with my family and being there and at least knowing that I gave everything and that I left no stone unturned so I don't have any regrets when I'm older and they're grown up that was the real beautiful gift that this and this is why I'm so happy to have you on the show and to be sharing it and so delighted to hear that you've had a similar experience. And it sounds crazy to people to hear that and even think about, well, you can say that you made your family the priority, but you and I both really did. Like we we made the scary step. It was not not scary of completely changing our life, completely changing our work. Um, and it, you, it, it is easy kind of to default to work being the way you provide for your family or the way that's, you know, that's the path people expect. But what you described, I think, is exactly what we talk about in the book and, and I felt I was doing, which was sequencing your life. You know, first in your 20s, you're trying to be successful and you start not spending time with your family, your parents and your friends' family probably at that point, because of course they want you to be successful, right? They, you know, you went to university and you're trying to you're trying to get yourself off the ground, your career off the ground. So you you start to give short shrift to those people because everybody should, you know, everybody wants this for me and I want this for me and I want to be successful. I've you know, worked hard to get here. So you start, you know, missing things. I mean, I still remember, you know, I never would make plans to go see my parents on the weekends ever when I lived, I lived in New York and they lived in Boston. Um, until maybe even like Friday night or Saturday, because I needed to make sure I didn't have any work to do. You start justifying all these choices. First, it's your nuclear family that you grew up with. And then in your 30s, for many of us, it's your own family. And it's the same thing. I want to provide for my family. I'm trying to do the right thing for my family. But if you think that you can wait until your 40s or your 50s to kind of see the payoff of that, you don't have those relationships with the people. It's just not the same. And the way Clay used to talk about it was a really good parallel is you, a company 
can't wait to in, invest in new innovations until it's in trouble, right? You have to invest in new innovations, you know, a decade before you need them so you can build and check and 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 diversify and disrupt yourself, all those things. And so it's the same with our lives. If you wait until you're at the point where it's easy and clear to do this, you may not have the foundation that you thought you had just by being a good provider or being so focused on on those material things for so long. Beautiful. I, I actually I love that because that that was the the breakthrough moment in my thinking was that it was like, oh, I have I have my family and my marriage and it's like a plate on a stick and I have enough momentum there to keep it going. I'll just turn over here and put these <laughs> other plates great- on sticks. <laughs> and then I, I realized one day I was like kind of going, you know what, I've been putting no energy into that plate on the stick. I, I, I've just been letting it go. And it's it's stagnant. And it's going to break. It's like, it's at the top of an S curve, and it's going to peter out and de- decay. And that is that- a great metaphor for it. The plate on the stick is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout the book, you and your other co author, James and Clay, you write in the collective eye, you talk in the first person throughout the book. So I, I, I have beautiful quotes that I've picked and hopefully can share throughout our conversation. But there's three main questions that you pose at the start of the book. And in a way, they're a lens through which to see all the different chapters that you bring us through as we progress through the book. Maybe you'll share those three questions because they're key to the story of this book. So let me explain where the questions came from before I uh, tell you what the questions are. So James, our co-author, was Clay's student uh, at the time that I was talking about and stayed on to work with him in in a fellowship. I was a middle-aged career person and Clay was a few years ahead of me in his career. So we came from three very different perspectives, um, but we all felt that these three questions were incredibly powerful. And, and where they came from is at the last class of every term that Clay would teach, he would write three questions on the board and then ask the students really to lead the conversation about answering those questions. And if you know uh, what Clay's well known for, you would think maybe there's some great innovation questions or his course that he taught was very popular was called BSSE, Building and Sustaining Successful Enterprises. So some kind of hardcore manager, you know, advice or guidance, but they were really surprising questions. They were, how can I find happiness in my career? How can I find happiness in my personal life? And how can I stay out of jail? Everyone laughs at the last one, but that was really asking a question about integrity. How can I maintain my integrity? And the origin of those questions is really meaningful here because Clay himself was graduate of the Harvard Business School class of 1979. And Harvard Business School puts on a really big uh, reunion every five years. And everybody looks forward to going. It's a big networking opportunity. It's kind of a triumphant moment where you can show off where you are in life and things like that. And Clay enjoyed going to his reunions, as most people did. Um, But he started to notice something that really bothered him. So at the 5 and then 10 and then 15, some of his classmates who he had thought great things were ahead for them, they they were good people, men and women who were going to go do good things in the world. They were off to a great start leaving Harvard Business School. He started to notice that they either got quiet about their lives or they would quietly share that, I don't really like what I do, but I like to make a lot of money or they were on second, third marriage, estranged from children. He actually had some classmates that had gotten into some real trouble. Jeffrey Skillings, who was the CEO of Enron, famous debacle, um, was one of his classmates. And what he says is, that's not the Jeffrey Skillings I knew. He was a good guy, smart guy, who was going to do good things in the world. So it began to bother him. 
why did these people who seem to have everything ahead of them and had so much potential and really had the gift of having a Harvard Business School education and, and the, the name that goes with that ahead of them, why had so many of them not ended up finding themselves in, in happy lives and satisfying lives? So he tried to answer that question for himself and then share it with his students so that they didn't suffer the same fate that too many of, not all, but too many of his classmates did in his opinion. So what he would do was take all of the theories that they had taught, they had talked about all semester. Clay's big thing is business theory, understanding what causes what to happen is the ultimate tool for making good decisions. He, he's not big on looking at data in the rearview mirror because that tells you what happened. It doesn't necessarily predict what's going to happen. So Clay's whole approach to that class was theory, theory as the ultimate decision-making tool. So the tools he had taught, the theories he had taught all semester he thought, and I agreed, could help answer those three questions for his students. So how can I find happiness in my career? How can I find happiness in my personal life? And how can I stay out of jail? And so they would discuss the theories through that lens. And it's a, it was a really powerful way to think about how the decisions and choices they were about to make in all of those categories in their life and, and in their work um, could be made so that they would be able to steer their career to a place that was going to make them happy, steer their life to a place that was going to make them happy and not just let it all come at them and happen to them in a way that was going to put them really far off course. So that's where the questions came from. They're not the questions that people would think of from such an esteemed thinker on innovation and other sort of management and leadership topics, but um, they were questions that I think Clay thought were the most important questions ever to ask his students. Hey, they are so important and they're so important. And, and I think the one about stay out of jail throws people a little bit but when you see that like jeff skilling we we did a show on the smartest men in the room with bethany mclean who exposed that the journalist who exposed the whole enron story and i was just i i asked myself that many times i was like kind of going i wonder how it got this it got there and and like everything else it's like gradually and then all of a sudden suddenly and i thought we'd bring it back to the the idea of how you and clay and james focused on this idea of don't tell people what to think, but how to think and let them make up their own decision. And this even goes back to some of the stories we've covered in this series on Clay of, for example, with Andy Grove in Intel, where he's like, give me the answers. How does this innovators dilemma thing affect us in Intel? And he's like, kind of going, you know what, here's the theory, let the theory, ask the theory, don't ask me, you understand the theory. And I think that's a trap we all fall into. Like, some of the hats I wear are consultant in organizations, but also I do some exec coaching. And a lot of times say on the exec coaching, people want a to do list. And I'll say, well, you're better off starting off with a to be list, what do you want to be? And what purpose do you want? And what what's your why? Figure out that and then your your to do list will fall out of that you first you got to figure out where you're going. And I think the same with the whole idea of the theory is, if you give people a way of thinking, then because everybody's so unique, like a snowflake or a fingerprint that then they can actually look through the theory and kind of go, Oh, this is how it works for me. And I think that's such an important aspect of the book that you call out early. I think Clay would think of it as the ultimate toolbox. And he doesn't, I, you know, I can't build it for you, but I can give you the tools so that you can build it yourself. And the fact that Clay, James, our co-author and I were such different people in such different stages of life. And one good example, I think we mentioned this someplace in the introduction, Clay is deeply religious. James was a, an avowed atheist. And I describe myself as somewhere in the middle. 
we had three very different points of view on that, but we all found these tools very helpful to us personally to think about the choices and decisions we were going to make in our life. So the idea of not teaching you what to think, but how to think is, is really a toolbox. It's a gift because you can apply it in the appropriate ways in your life, in your decisions, and no one else can live your life for you. No one else can make the decisions that have the exact consequences for you. And Clay used to always say, all decisions and all theories have to be applied in context, right? What are the circumstances in which this is the right way to think about this decision? This is the right tool. And they're not all the same for everybody, but you have all of those theories, those tools to kind of say, this is the way I want to think about this. I'm going to think about it through that lens or that is the way that becomes, we got described when the book originally came out, I think it was in the Financial Times as the ultimate self-help book. And I thought that was a good way to think about it because we weren't telling you what to do the way a lot of self-help books were. We were, I think, helping you to think about helping yourself to make these choices and decisions for yourself. I, I'm going to totally dumb it down to my level now, Karen, because the way I thought about it was, do you, do, do you ever see the movie Predator with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Yeah, I did. So yeah. another way the Predator has different ways of seeing so he can see yep. ultraviolet light, etc. I, I often think about that, like you can look at the same thing and see it entirely different through a different lens. And that's what the theories provide for you. And then on top of that, you have the neurodiversity of the person doing the seeing and then the circumstance they're in. So there's so many different elements here that that understanding the theory makes it really useful. So maybe now that we have kind of set up the context, we can start to look at some of the chapters and some of the questions that you identify throughout the book and examine through the different lenses. One of the ones that is so elusive for so many is how to find happiness in their career. So many people are disengaged in work. Many, many different Gallup surveys show us that. So many people are just barely hanging on They're, you know, quiet quitting, the great resignation, all these things are happening in the background. And I thought I'd tee you up with a Steve Jobs quote. And Steve Jobs is quite important in all this, because the innovators dilemma was one of his favorite books. It was one of the books, as you told me, that he had on his library, he didn't have very many. And this was a book that he really enjoyed. But he said, the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking. Don't settle. As with all matters of the heart, you'll know it when you find it. And that sounds great. It's a beautiful quote and all. But it's very, very difficult for many people to find that for a wide range of reasons. So maybe we'll look at that question and that idea of finding happiness in the career as the starting point. I think he said that to a graduating class too. And, and to some extent, maybe it's easy for Steve Jobs to say with the benefit of his success, but um, he did live it too. So I'll, we'll talk about how Clay thought about that because I think it's really powerful. Um, th there are a number of ways we talk about it in the book, but one of the ways is about understanding what really motivates people. What is the theory of motivation? What really motivates you to be satisfied with your work, to be excited to go into your work, to, to get out of bed in the morning, you know, looking forward to the day. Uh, and we reference an article that was a very popular article in Harvard Business Review years ago by a psychologist called Daniel Hertzberg, uh, where he identifies the way people make decisions in motivation differently than the rest of us might. And what Hertzberg says, and we talk about in the book, is that most people might think naturally there's kind of one continuous scale of happiness with your work from dissatisfied to satisfied or unhappy to happy. So you want to be high on the scale. You want to be high on the happiness scale or the satisfaction scale. 
But Hertzberg tells us, and this is just feels so true in my experience, that there are two different scales that, that play into how we feel about our work. And he called them hygiene factors, a scale of hygiene factors, which I'll explain in a minute, and a scale of intrinsic motivators, which I'll explain in a minute. And if you understand that maybe there are these two separate things at work as you're making your career decisions or you're thinking about your job or your path ahead, that may make you uh, cause you to make totally different decisions in your career. So how would that be? What would the difference be? So hygiene factors are the things that I think most people think about when they're making job decisions or they're thinking about their progression in their job. I, I always say that they're the things you can see on a resume. Is it a fancy title? Is it a company that people will be impressed that I work for? Uh, what are my perks and benefits? Do I get a good office? Is the salary you know, a certain level? Are all the things that will make me feel like I have a prestigious job part of my, part of my work? And what Hertzberg says is that that scale, the, the hygiene factors, goes from dissatisfied, these things are not present, they don't feel good enough to me, to the top of it is, not dissatisfied. Okay, it's okay. But the top of that scale is not satisfied and happy and motivating. It's just, okay, this isn't terrible. <laughs> this is okay. And when you think about those things, you need to have them. You need to be able to support your family. You need to be able to put food on the table. There are certain things you need to be able to do. But above a certain point, particularly salary, it doesn't provide you with any extra motivation. It just doesn't over time. It, it will it will provide you with lack of dissatisfaction, but not the, not the abundance of satisfaction. So that might be the quiet quitting people that at some point having working for a prestigious organization, making enough money, feeling like your perks and benefits are good is just not enough to make you want to get out of bed five days a week and go to that office or get on your computer. It just it doesn't motivate you over time. You need to have enough, but at a certain point you top out. So what's the difference between that and the next scale? Well, the next scale are intrinsic motivators. And those are the things that are harder to see on a resume, but really make a much more powerful difference to making you love your job or love your work. And those are things like, am I respected by my peers? Am I given opportunities to grow? Uh, and do, do I believe in the mission of this organization? Am, am I going to be going someplace that stimulates and challenges me along the way? They're sort of intangibles. But those things are the things that, that Hertzberg says are actually the ones that will provide you satisfaction in your job. And, and the reason this is so powerful, Clay would talk about it looking for what, what is not explained by the theories. And when we were originally talking about these motivators, a lot of people, students certainly would say, well, you can pay people. You can pay people to want what you can want. You can pay people to be motivated. You can pay people to you know, go the extra mile. And you can, but only for a short period of time. Over time, you you know the, the incentive is not real to them. They're not personally motivated. They're just doing what you want for a little while, and then they sort of get numb to that. And he would say, Clay would say, well, well, that theory you can pay people to do what you want doesn't explain some of the greatest workers we know of. There, people who work for not for profits, people, teachers, people who work for the military. There's something else that's going on. And when you understand the power of those intrinsic motivators, and you think about your own work and your own work choices. You might make very different choices than if you were just trying to do the things that you're supposed to want that seem like promotions and opportunities to other people, but may not provide you with those things. And for me, that became really powerful. Not just nothing anyone can just sort of instantly quit their job and try to find something with the perfect intrinsic motivators. But in thinking about how do you, as if you're managing other people, 
or if you're being managed by other people, how do you find some moments of intrinsic motivation in whatever you're doing now so you can make it better? You know, it might be that you find it in mentoring somebody, or it might be that you ask to be work on a pro bono project for your organization. How can how can you in some way add some intrinsic motivators to the everyday life to make that feeling so much better? Because the hygiene factors are just okay, but they're not great. And and you can't settle for hygiene factors if you really want to love what you do. And it, it, it takes time, doesn't it, Karen? Like I think, you know, one of the things that happens when you are either a recipient of executive coaching or as a giver of executive coaching, or even those moments like you had with Clay, is that when you do have those meaningful conversations, and you start to ask real questions, and then you give it time to gestate and marinate in your head, you do change direction. And, you know, sometimes you, you get a bit of stick as this is an exec coach is like, oh, you coached their person and they left. <laughs> and, and you're kind of going, well, yeah, well, their life is better now as a result of that. And uh, they're kind of going, that's not what we wanted more out of them. And I was like, kind of going, well, th- that's what happens. But that's a good thing. I think when people you're, you're, and in a way, influencing the course of their life for the better. And at least, you know, if they do try it, and it doesn't work out, at least they tried it. And you know, th- there was a book, uh, Bonnie Ware wrote a book about the top five regrets uh, of all that she was a palliative nurse. And she looked at all these people who are on their deathbeds, and she asked them their biggest regrets. One of them was not trying things and not going for it. And, and I think that's, I think that's really, I from our conversation beforehand, and our conversation now and from reading the book is that's what you're trying to do here is you're kind of going come on get the best out of it while we have this opportunity and don't regret it later on and there's a a little piece i just pulled here as a an example or quote um because you say the theory of motivation suggests you need to ask yourself a different set of questions than most of us are used to asking is this work meaningful to me is this job going to give me a chance to develop Am I going to learn new things? Will I have an opportunity for recognition and achievement? Am I going to be given responsibility? And these are things that will truly motivate you. Once you get this right, the more measurable aspects of your job will fade in importance. I think that's a really key point. And maybe you'll elaborate on that. I definitely think that. In fact, as I guide young people who come, either hear me talk or even my own children, I suggest to them that the thing, those are questions to ask when they're looking at a job and even asking those questions out loud because those things are so powerful and can make the difference between, you know, barely, you know, taping your eyes open to get through the eight hour day or 10 hour day, or whatever it is, and actually finding moments to feel like this is exciting and feeling like this is an opportunity to grow. I just think that we don't stop to think about what's going to make us happy. These questions, they're not the definitive questions, but they give you a frame for thinking about it. If we just let sort of the rest of society tell us, you know, what's supposed to make us happy, what success is supposed to look like, and you never stop and think about it for yourself, you're not going to be able to have good answers to those questions. And I think too many people, especially people who are hardwired to be high achievers, just think there's supposed to be a path they're supposed to be on. And some of those questions or making career choices that might not feel as glamorous to outsiders um, doesn't may, may make them feel like they're they're not succeeding on society's terms. But what, why Clay always wanted to talk to his students about this is it's true. Once you get out into the world, you're, there's just so much coming at you. Life is busy and full and you, you, know, you have your own family or you, your career kind of consumes you. And if you don't stop to ask these questions of yourself, you're just going to let things happen to you versus having the opportunity to shape, shape yourself and shape your 
career. And even as we say, if you're in a job that doesn't provide all of those things naturally, I, as a manager, um, always think you can add, those things can be added in some small ways, but you have to know to ask. You have to know to talk to your manager or talk to your direct reports about how can we do this? How can we add opportunities for you to grow? How can we find chances for you to have the recognition you deserve? It, it has, it, people might not think it's important, but it's profoundly important. So even having the language to ask yourself the questions and then ask in your work context, the questions I think is really, really important. It's, I used to always say that it was, I, I would join a company for culture over the name by far. Um, and so some of my own jobs have been not glamorous sounding, but wonderful opportunities. And that was because I got lucky. I didn't know I should be asking about culture, but in hindsight, I did. I, I recognized that the culture would, did all of those things, even though it didn't have, you know, it didn't sound impressive to people, again, at cocktail parties. But um, if you know to ask those questions, you can do more than get lucky. You can start to shape it a little bit. I think that's such an important point and a great segue for what we're going to talk about next, which is the balance between calculation and serendipity. And because if you go to, if you go off the beaten path, there's so much pleasures to be found there. I, I often think of the story of like, if you think about Little Red Riding Hood and this, all these stories, there were warnings, don't go off the beaten path, you know, especially if you're a young lady, don't go off here. There's wolves that'll, you know, have their way with you, you better be careful. And that's just embedded in society in so many ways. It's like conform, stick to the path, etc. And when you do deviate from the path, and you try things, often beautiful serendipities happen. And if that's combined with the th things we talked about earlier on, like having a, your values sorted, knowing what you want out of life, then you'll have the part of your brain activated that will spot the serendipities and kind of go there hints that I'm on the right path. And maybe you'll, you'll give us some context for, for this. But I absolutely love of all the case studies, my favorite is the Super Cub and Honda and how that emerged that whole strategy because on the face of it it looked like this magnificent strategy honda will take america but when it, you actually see what really happened it's just so much more beautiful i love telling this story too it's a really great story so uh, honda as we now know is one of the leading auto manufacturers in the world and dominant in america and very successful and you know many hondas literally you can see on the road at any given day but Honda had a really bad start into the American market in the 60s and almost failed here, almost failed here. And what happened was Honda initially wanted to break into the American market through its motorcycles. Uh, they eyed the uh, Harley Davidson market, the sort of big American motorcycle road bikes and, and thought, you know, all of America, all of that geography, we can sell our motorcycles there too. We'll just get a little piece of that market. It'll be the thin end of the wedge. We'll get into America. So they opened up a single storefront shop in Los Angeles and they brought over their motorcycles, which were Japanese motorcycles made for a different environment for, for cities, for urban environments in Japan. Uh, and they were called the Super Cubs. And they were kind of smaller motorcycles. They were motorcycles, but they were smaller. And they maybe looked a little bit cute, you know, not powerful like the like the Harley Davidsons. And so in the beginning, it was it was really just a flop. I mean, nobody bought those motorcycles. And the few that they had 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 some oil leak problems. It was just it was a potential disaster that might have caused Honda to just roll up the carpet and go home. And their path, their strategy was very deliberate. We're going to take on Harley Davidson and, and take a piece of that American motorcycle market. We can do it. 
And that path, that blinders on path of this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it through these super cubs did not work. But luckily, serendipitously, the employees of that little location started in their frustration, actually taking their first taking the little super cubs out to do errands in Los Angeles, because it was actually easier than getting in horrible Los Angeles traffic sort of zipping around more easily. And then they took them out into the hills, those sort of dirt hills you see in movies of Hollywood that, where people hike and it's sort of almost ready-made for dirt biking type of thing. And they would take them out and get their frustrations out and just have some fun with the, with the super cubs. And one of those times there was a buyer for the great American department store of that time, Sears, who was out there. And he said to the employees, those are really cool. Could we consider buying those for our sporting goods section, which is like inside the department store with other fun things you'd play with not a motorcycle store, not a powerful competitor to Harley Davidson. And Honda's first reaction was absolutely not. Our strategy is to compete with Harley Davidson and the big manufacturers. Um, so we that's what we're going to do. So they ignored it for a while. Luckily, at some point, they sort of thought, maybe we should just try it. We're not doing well here. Maybe we should be open to a different perspective. So they did. They accepted the agreement with Sears. And then the rest, as it says, is history. It, they created a whole new category, you know, the sort of more fun motorcycle the more sporting goods motorcycle it was still the way to get into america but a very different way uh, and we talk about those as deliberate strategy and emergent strategy emergent strategy is what they ended up doing it's when it's not what you originally planned but it turns out that an opportunity does appear you have to see it recognize it's an opportunity but you can be okay pursuing that emergent strategy because it opens up something it creates a new opportunity again you at least you at least know and that's the way most successful companies evolve too. Very few companies start out with the perfect strategy, execute it perfectly and succeed. Most companies that succeed start out with a strategy, a deliberate strategy, but along the way, they have to shift it. They have emergent opportunities that come up and they see new things. And so it's a combination, successful company strategy is a combination of the two. You weave them together over time. But in our personal lives, so often people think that, especially high achievers, young achievers particularly, I have to be in five years, I want to have a VP title, or in 10 years, I want to lead a division, or I want to set up my own company, whatever it is, and you kind of put your head down to achieve that goal. And that's on the thought that you have to have a deliberate strategy and focus on it. But in reality, if like successful companies, you, it, very few people are completely successful with what they initially think is going to make them successful, you have to be open to emergent strategy as well. So in our lives, it's back to what you talk about, not regretting. You regret the things you don't do, not the things you do. The things that you uh, do in emergent strategy are the opportunities that you think, I will try something different. And you and I both did an emergent strategic decision in our careers to do something, and it worked out really well. But if we had been so focused on staying on track, we might not have. And it's important for people to understand that it's it's not only natural and normal, but it's actually important to succeeding to understand that strategy is a combination of emergent and deliberate together. There's a quote I loved, I, I mentioned the writing here, and I love your writing. And I love how you bring these theories to life. And there's a quote here that I have to share, it says the process of strategy then reiterates through these steps over and over again, constantly evolving. In other words, strategy is not a discrete analytical event, something decided, say, in a meeting of top managers based on the best numbers and analysis available at the time. Rather, 
It is continuous, diverse, and unruly. Managing is very hard. The deliberate strategy and the new emerging opportunities fight for resources. On the one hand, if you have a strategy that is really working, you need to deliberately focus to keep everyone working together in that right direction. At the same time, however, the focus can easily cause you to dismiss as a distraction what could actually turn out to be the next big thing. That is the dilemma. That is what happens in organizations. I've established this thing, which started off as emergent, but now is deliberate because it's returning investment. And as a result of that, some guy in or girl in sector 7g comes forward and go, Hey, I got this idea of where we can go on the dirt hills and these super cub things. And you're kind of going, shut up, we're making progress, we're going over here. That's what happens everywhere. And I'd love you to elaborate on that, because it really is still persistent and pervasive in so many companies. That's exactly what the innovator's dilemma is, which is the incumbent company, the successful company, the company that has succeeded on this deliberate strategy, uh, gets so used to that success and the profitability of what it's doing that it doesn't want to do anything that will disrupt it, that will that will make that not happen. So uh, it's very difficult to be ambidextrous, to be continuing to to focus on the things that got you there, that are working, that are successful, without recognizing that that because of the process you just described accurately, that it's messy and dynamic and changing, that that means you have to you have to be simultaneously looking for those emergent opportunities and deciding how and when can you pursue them both until it becomes clear what the next deliberate path is. And so it's very hard. It's very hard for managers to know that the sector G, I love to say that, whatever, the person with the list taker super cubs into Sears and the dirt, the dirt bikes, that's a hard conversation to have. But it's important to have in the recognition that, again, all innovation is dynamic and nothing, nothing stays forever. And we talk about in, in some of Clay's other works, the different forms of innovation, there are efficiency innovations, things that sort of make it cheaper to get it out or get it out to pro- the product out to, to market faster. That's when you see people moving their factories to other countries, for example. There are sustaining innovations, innovations that you buy the newest iPhone, but you, you change, you know, upgrade the color. It's more or less a product or brand you like, and it will keep, it keep customers there, but it's just sort of keeps you sustain your clients. And then there are really market creating innovations. And those are rare, the ones that actually create new opportunities for you, totally new sources of revenue, totally new markets. And that is the hardest for people to to see and commit to. But it's also the one that has the most power to be transformative. So so understand, again, asking the questions and understanding that those two things are always going to be competing uh, and recognizing the value of emergent opportunities and, and perhaps finding ways to not dismiss them because you're so focused while still staying focused on what is working for you now. That's the dance. And, and that's how great companies succeed is they understand how to do that dance. And they understand that both parts of it are important. I let you know, we had Rita McGrath on for part two of this series with where we talked about discovery driven planning, because that was something that Clay it was a lens through which he saw things as well. But as you say in the book, it works for more than business models, you tell us every time you consider a career move, keep thinking about the most important assumptions that have to prove true, and how you can swiftly and inexpensively test if they are valid. Make sure you are being realistic about the path ahead. Maybe you'll give us a quick refresher on discovery driven planning and how it can apply to a career because we've talked about how it works in business. But I love the way you apply it now as a new lens through which to see, well, what am I going to get out of this? Or should I try this? And how I can proceed? 
it's it's a great tool. And I think Reader McGrath is fantastic. And I talk about this tool with people a lot because I think it's really easy to understand and apply in real life. And at a very simple level, the tool is just what has to prove to be true? What are my assumptions? And what has to prove to be true for this to work out the way I think it's going to work out? And the reason that's so important is so many of us make decisions in our minds based on well, I'm sure I'm going to get more responsibility in the next year. Or I know they said in the job interview, I'm going to get a chance to work on um, some not-for-profit work as part of the portfolio of clients that we help or whatever. You, You sort of, some of us hear what we want to hear, or they say what we want to say, or conversations that are well-intended end up giving two different, two different, like we both think something different was said or happened. So as a discipline, for when you're making decisions yourself in your career, literally write them down. I do it in projects sometimes too. And it's communication with others, but like to yourself, what am I assuming is going to happen from this choice or this decision? I am assuming I am going to be given promotion opportunities once I've got the basics under, under my belt, or I am assuming that I'm going to be given the chance to collaborate with some of the higher level people. So I'll learn from them, or I am assuming that I will be able to balance my work life and my professional life. They said in the job interview that, you know, we care for friends, your family comes first and, and, and things like that. So you, what, write, write your assumptions down and then kind of put in the next column. So what has to prove to be true? What are some good ways for me to test that? So, you know, you might write down and, you know, chance for growth, you know, in the next six months, I will be in meetings with um, the senior creative team. So I'll get to see how they work. Or um, I, I will not be asked to work on weekends or respond to late night emails or whatever you think are the things that, will, that should be good indications if what you're assuming is going to happen is going to happen. And it's just a simple tool, but I think sometimes so many of us talk ourselves into, oh, it worked out differently. I forgot that I was supposed to want that. Or I forgot that they said that. You sort of justify your choice later, and then you don't quite understand why you're not being you're not happy in that position. So it's a really good way of just saying out loud to yourself, uh, but potentially to others as well, what am I assuming is going to happen here so that you can check yourself. And the the benefit of discovery driven planning is you keep going back and checking. And maybe you end up saying that isn't happening, but this is, so I can check it in a different way, but it's good to know I have to recalibrate what I'm assuming is going to happen. I'm not going to be given these chances to be in creative meetings with senior people, but I have been given some small projects where I can showcase or whatever. You can go back. It's a, it's a constant reassessment so that you know where things stand. And I think as much as anything, it's to be clear with yourself why you made the decision that you made and what you're hoping is going to happen so that if it doesn't work out that way, then you can decide what can I do to fix it, change it, alter it, have better conversations, or do I need to look for a different opportunity because this one's not panning out the way I thought. Um, I think it's really valuable because I think so many of us kind of have revisionist history. We forget why we why we made the choices that we made and we justify, and but it still nags at us that something's not quite right. And I think it's a simple thing to do. I would literally put it in your computer someplace. I might check it every quarter or every six months. And just say, how am I doing against these things that I said were important to me to happen? How is, is that happening or not? And you can decide what to do once you assess that. I often think it's so important, that one, for if you have, say, for example, you decide you want to leave a job or maybe it's a relationship that's not serving you very well. And to have a record of that, of your why you do this is really important because our, 
our memories are are flaky we forget and we we rewrite our memories a, a lot of the time and and you know even in a positive sense i think that's gratitude journaling or anything like that when you revisit and you kind of go wow look or even where you're setting out your intentions and you look back over things that you had manifested and you're like wow i i actually achieved on on those things i, I you know assumptions works in every which way it can also make you reevaluate that this is actually i am getting a lot of what i think i need so maybe i have to just tweak these other couple of things i think you're right it can be a very positive experience but in case unless you have something to measure it by you know you're sort of just thinking in the abstract every time and i think that's great and one of the ways we can measure that is if you think that your strategy is your strategy really you say well you can measure that by where you put your resources because that's where you tell how a strategy is a strategy and if you're actually implementing it again one of the ways you see this oftentimes is you you do coaching and mentoring when somebody's like going yeah yeah i'll do that and then they're like going, oh i just didn't have time you're like kind of going that's when you know do you really want it or not and again, I mentioned the Honda being one of my favorite cases. The other one that exposes this the most is the Sonicide case. And I'd love you to share this. So this is the one with the famous meeting where the CEO goes along with the sales team, with one of the sales team, one of his killer sales team, and discovers what's really going on. It's a great case. And uh, Clay used to talk about that in class. And it was really fascinating way to look at why things happen differently in organizations than you think are supposed to happen. So this is a case of a company called Sonosite, which made portable um, ultrasound devices. And they were a successful company with um, small, you know, increasingly smaller and smaller portable ultrasound machines, which you know, had the potential to change medicine, right? If you didn't have to go into a big hospital to get access to an ultrasound, you could diagnose problems earlier. You, you could give people medical attention sooner. It was a good thing to be getting smaller and smaller. They had a very successful model from memory. It was like a $10,000 machine. I think it was called the Titan um, that uh, was selling very well. And the salespeople did really well selling that machine. But then they invented an even smaller, really truly handheld one. I think it was like the size of a briefcase or something like that. And the CEO, a guy called Kevin Goodwin, was really excited about the potential for this, this smaller, truly handheld machine to change the world because you could take it out in rural locations, remote locations all over the world. You could give people medical help if you had the ability for a doctor to, or a nurse to just pack that and go, as opposed to having to wheel it in on a big cart or whatever. So he was really excited about the potential of this truly handheld one. And he started to notice that in spite of him declaring, this is going to be our priority to sell these handheld ones, they weren't selling that well. And they had great salespeople. Uh, and they had revved up the sales team. You know, we've got this new, truly portable one. So he asked to go along on a sales call with one of their top salespeople to just see how are customers receiving this? Why is this not, you know, why are people not more excited about this? It was cheaper. It was truly handheld, maybe not as good, but it was, it did the job for a lot of things where you wouldn't have any other alternative. And so he went on a sales call to pitch the new uh, handheld machine. And the sales guy went on and on about the bigger, more expensive model, the uh, $10,000 model. And Kevin Goodwin kind of leans over to the guy and quietly says, tell him about the handheld. And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then goes on and on about the, the more expensive model. Again, this guy's a great salesperson. He's sitting there with his ultimate boss, the CEO. He still doesn't talk about it. Kevin Goodwin leans over again. He's like, hey, get the get the handheld out there. And the guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he keeps talking and he's 
you know, engaged client talking about the, all the cool things about this new one. And it takes Goodwin three times before the guy actually responds and takes the handheld out of his briefcase. And we're like, what's going on? Is that just complete insubordination? Does he not think much of the CEO? None of those things were true. He, the, the, the strategy that Goodwin had told everybody was the company strategy was not matched by all the various incentives for those salespeople. And the most obvious one was that guy made a commission on his sales and selling one $10,000 model was far better than having to sell 10 $1,000 models of the lesser one. But I think even beyond that, it was sort of, he was, he was given all kinds of status and prestige in the company for being a top salesperson. And that might go away if he starts selling, having to work harder to sell small, uh, the, uh, the small one and having to build up his portfolio again. The resource allocation, the decisions that everybody in that company was making on a day-to-day basis, how are they going to spend their time, their energy, what are they going to prioritize? That is where the strategy is really formed. So in spite of Kevin Goodwin declaring that this was going to be their priority to sell this new handheld model, all the other choices that people were making on a day-to-day basis didn't support that strategy. They supported the old strategy. And it's only when you understand that those resource allocation decisions actually lead to the strategy, for better or for worse, do you understand the importance of making sure that your resource allocation, the choices on how your company spends its time, its energy, what it prioritizes, is the way your strategy is really going to be formed. It's not what you say it is. So we say in the book, your strategy is not what you say it is. It's, it's what happens in those everyday choices by people in the trenches. I'd love to extend this to something that I thought was so still prevalent in organizations where, again, kind of like Kevin Goodwin, you might have a team of executives and they're like, we need a culture of innovating around our organization, etc. And we need to encourage this and we need people to be more innovative. And I loved how you described this in the book. And it reminded me of a Greek proverb. And the proverb is, a society grows great when old people plant trees whose shade they know they shall never sit in. So the idea of starting new ideas, new businesses, emergent concepts within an organization, knowing that you may not be the one that actually gets the credit for that, that is so difficult for innovators as well. But I'll quote you here in the book, because you talk about high potentials in Unilever. And you say, think about this from the perspective of young employees, all of whom were thrilled to be picked for the high potential leadership program in Unilever. What projects are they most likely to covet? in each of their assignments. In theory, they should champion products and processes that will be key to Unilever's future success five and 10 years ahead. But the results of those efforts only available many years later will garnish the record of whoever is in that specific assignment at the time, not the person whose insight initiated it. Therein lies the dilemma. And again, to your point, organizations think the strategy is working, but then there's all this stuff that happens in the middle. And sometimes it's rewards and recognition that skew it and point it in a totally different direction. That's a really good example, too, because it was it was exciting to be picked for the high potential program of Unilever and many companies around the world. It's a very similar thing. But there was no incentive at all for those people to do what was best for the organization in the long run. Their incentive was to do something showy enough that they would look good in the two or three years they're in that program. And there's nothing wrong with having a program like that. That's to, to give them the high potentials, that kind of showcase. But understand 
that that's the choice you're making as a company. Your your resource allocation is you're rewarding short-term successes, not things that build for the long-term. And is that your strategy? Is your strategy to reward short-term successes? That's the one you're executing. So if it's not your strategy, then you need to think about your resource allocation differently and, and think about what would you need to do and support and champion on everyday decisions that would lead you to a long-term strategy of, of building things, innovations and, and new ideas that pay off in the long-term, not the short-term. This brings us to maybe the last question for part one. And that's like, okay, that's business. That's an organization with their strategy. What about you? Because us on a personal level, we do this all the time. And it's something we mentioned at the start where I'm working really hard in order to provide my, for my family and in doing so, I'm never spending any time with my family. And then when I'm with my family, I'm so obsessed about working hard to provide for my family. I can't be present mentally when I'm with my family. And it's a real dilemma. And it happens many people. And by the way, no judgment. I've been there. I've absolutely done this. I'm so glad I woke up. And the book, this beautiful book was one of the reasons I woke up as well. And I hope this show does that for many people. But you say on a personal resource allocation perspective, the danger for high achieving people is that they'll unconsciously allocate the resources to activities that yield the most immediate tangible accomplishments. This is often in their careers as this domain of their life provides the most concrete evidence that they are moving forward. And that's measured in the car you drive, the house that you live in, the dinner parties you're attending, whatever it might be for you. And unfortunately, they're not the things that really count at the end of the day. That is exactly what happened to me standing by my car in Harvard Business School is that it really clicked in my mind that my resource allocation process was really skewed. It was just off. I was doing exactly what you talk about. I was giving most of my time and energy to the things that were kind of calling for my attention loudest and, and nearest. And it was work and it was deadlines and it was stuff that wasn't even either of those things. They're just things that fill your days that are, I would have told you, were not as important as my family. Um, but if you looked at my resource allocation, if you looked at how I spent my time in a, a day, a week, a month, a year, uh, my resource allocation process did not support that my family was the most important thing. Work was important to me too, but my family was my priority. And that just wasn't true in terms of how the strategy I was building for my life. And um, I, I look back and laugh at it now, but you talk about, again, no no shame. I was in that, in that zone too. The first article I wrote for what was then the new Harvard Business Review Online, hbr.org, um, was a personal article called confessions of an unrepentant blackberry addict and i wrote the whole article just talking about how having a blackberry in eyesight at all times um so i could see i got i gained it in my in my family i could put the blackberry on top of a particular bookshelf and see when the light went on and there was a new email so i could casually go over and do it that made me feel more relaxed and more in control and i could be more present with my family but it just really wasn't true i was just never not as fully present with my children particularly as i wanted to be my resource allocation process was just wrong. And I got, I, I feel lucky that I had that realization soon enough in my life. It wasn't super soon. <laughs> my kids were probably about eight, nine at the time. Um, and the way I kind of started to click how something had really changed was my daughters used to, we had a, a, a car 
a garage that you would drive into in the house. It was like a the garage was in the house. And I would drive into the garage at the end of the day, and the door would go up and then down. And then my daughters used to make a game of hiding behind a door and jumping out and then scaring me or saying hi every time I came home. And it was fun. It was our little ritual. It was like mom's home and they were happy to see me. I started to realize they were not jumping out so much anymore. That didn't it wasn't so exciting or maybe they wouldn't even look up from what they were playing when I got home. And that just hit me again, all these things swirling through my mind was, I was at the point where that was really at risk. My, my really wonderful relationship with my children, I was sequencing, right? I'm going to continue to be successful in my career and provide the best I can. And I, I was not truly present with the people that I would have told you were most important in my life. And they were most important in my life. So for me, that was the Ha, ah, you know, the, the road to Damascus moment, I absolutely had to stop and change my resource allocation so that I could pursue the strategy for my life that I actually really deeply cared about. I'm going to share mine with you. And I, this still, still kills me when I think about it. So I remember once my son was three, and it was it was just before I discovered the book. And he was a, he was only a little baby. And it was I was in his bedroom. And I had my phone. And I was playing with him. So he, he was playing with his teddies and I'm on my phone checking emails. And he grabs my hand and little baby eyes, kind of like Puss in Boots in the Puss in Boots movie, you know, when the eyes open. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> he's like, Daddy, being on your phone isn't playing with me. And I was like, <laughs> my heart like was like, I, but I actually got so angry with myself. I don't know if that happened here. I was so angry with myself. And I was like, I nearly smashed my phone. And I was like, Oh God, things have to change here because I just, I, I, I had, it was the, it was the moment for me. And, you know, I, hopefully we can provoke these moments and, uh, you know, I, I really want to say to our audience, think about where you're allocating your resources. We, and by the way, you, you fall from grace all the time, even though you, you're aware of this. I do it sometimes myself, Karen, sometimes I'm like kind of going, come on, you, you say you're saying this, but your behavior, your resource allocation is not actually matching what your intentions are. And uh, it's it's an ongoing battle, I have to say, from my perspective. But what about you? So this is part one of part two that you've, you've gra graciously uh, offered your time for. And I'm so grateful for that. But what's your final message for this part one for our audience, maybe some question you leave them with or some thought to ponder and then we'll come back in part two and hopefully expand more on the beautiful concepts in this book. So I guess I would leave them with the question that I asked myself by the car that day, which is, what is the strategy for my life? What do I actually want my life to be? And I don't know that I had articulated it to myself. I kind of had vague thoughts. And like everybody, you say it's your family, but you, you know, you're really jazzed by pursuing your career or whatever. But, I, but when I stopped to ask myself that question, which is what Clay would ask his students, is think about what is the strategy for your life? What strategy are you trying to pursue? What are you trying to achieve with your life? When you ask yourself that question, and your answer may be different than mine, but until we've asked ourselves that question, we don't know either of our answers. Until you have that question, you can't know how to do the resource allocation right. And you can't know uh, what's going to be the right choice for you to make when you're faced with decisions. So asking yourself the question, what is the strategy for your life? What are you trying to achieve for your life is a really important first step, because until you know that, you don't know where you're steering. And so for me, that was a really important smelling salt moment to start to answer that question for myself. And it took a long time to get to the right answer. And again, it's a very personal answer for everybody. But once I knew that, 
it became much easier to make decisions and choices. So I leave your, your listeners to ask the question of themselves, what is the strategy for your life? Fantastic. And Karen, for anybody who wants to find you, where is the best place to find you? I love linking in with people on LinkedIn. And I also have my own website, karendillon.net. Author of How Will You Measure Your Life? Karen Dillon, thank you for joining us for part one. Thank you for having me. We want to thank our sponsor, Next Estate. Next Estate specializes in English-speaking, buying, selling, and managing of properties in the German market. They're Berlin-based, and you can find them at next-estate.com.